0: Before we jump in, I want to give a huge thank you to our listeners because we just hit an incredible milestone. Redefiner's has now seen over 1 million downloads since we launched in September of 2021. It is crazy to think how far this podcast has come in just two years but it's all about you listeners. You did the million downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Wow, 1 million is a massive number. It's hard to wrap my head around that. Clark, you and Nanaz laid a great foundation for this podcast when you started. I'm so honored to help carry it forward. Here's to the next million.
0: Hoda, you're good for 2 million, come on. <laughs> well, listen, getting back to today's episode, we're excited to chat with someone who is really changing the game in their industry.
2: You ask, do people need to learn before they leap? I actually think they need to leap in order to learn. That is the only way to learn. There's a limit to what one can really apply to your own business if you're not experimenting.
1: Call them changemakers. Call them rule breakers. We call them redefiners. Join
0: us in conversation with daring leaders
1: who are creating extraordinary impact and driving change from around the globe. Each episode gives you a fresh perspective on your leadership and career journey. I'm Hoda Tahoon, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds.
0: I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive officer and a leadership advisor. And this is Redefiners.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. Today, we have a special treat. This episode is the first in a two-part series on technology and AI. Double the airtime, double the learnings. I'm so excited to talk with our guest today as he is at the forefront of some of the biggest issues global leaders are facing today, including technology, cybersecurity, AI, sustainability, privacy, human rights, and immigration. And the list goes on. He's been a key leader in the digital and information age, depending on what you want to call it, for the past 30 years. In fact, the New York Times has called this redefining leader a, quote, de facto ambassador for the technology industry at large, end quote. Clark, that's quite a quotation from the New York Times. I
0: was going to say, yeah, I'm kind of of intimidated to begin with, okay? But maybe Hoda, you're going to have to take this one. But, But actually, everyone's asking about the role of technology, the power of technology, the fear of technology. Our boards, as we recruit executives, all of whom need to be digital executives, as you'd expect. But when it comes to AI, how much do they need to learn before they leap? That's right. So these kind of issues are at the forefront of who we're recruiting as leaders. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped up to, to ask the ambassador, if we will, all these questions.
1: I know, I can't wait to pick their brain. And you know, Clark, that whole intersection of productivity, efficiency, innovation, how do you thread the needle? I mean, every client of mine is dealing with this in their everyday, they're thinking about technology, they're thinking about AI, cyber risk. I mean, it's just everywhere. I don't think there's any industry that's not facing these issues today.
0: Right. So this podcast has just moved for our listeners to four hours instead of 30 minutes. (laughs) With no further ado, our guest today is Brad Smith, vice chair and president of Microsoft. Brad leads a team of about 200,000 professionals that operate more than 120 nations to guide and operate Microsoft. Brad joined in 1993, served in a variety of legal affairs roles in Europe and US, and as Microsoft's kind of infamous general counsel in the early 2000s, he led the work to resolve the antitrust issues with governments around the world, as well as companies in the sector. In his best-selling book called Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age, Brad urges the sector to assume more responsibility, not less, and calls for governments to move faster to address the challenges that new technologies create. Certainly no easy task. So, Brad, welcome to Redefiners. Thank you. It's great to be here with both of you.
1: Brad, we are so excited and we have a lot to unpack today. So why don't we get started with the fact that you've been now with Microsoft for about 30 years. You've had a front row seat And not only how much the tech industry has changed, but also in how much has changed our business world, our societies, every piece and fabric of culture. The tech industry has obviously become a dominant force in every part of the global economy and really in everything that we do. So as you look back at your career so far, are there moments that stand out for you as big shifts, not only in the technology aspects such as the Internet, of course, but just how the industry overall thinks and operates?
2: I think there have been a number of shifts, and they encompass so many different things, a lot of shifts in technology, which in many ways have been the most important. But I'd actually start by pointing to a different shift. And I think you just hit the nail on the head with your question. Have there been shifts in the way the industry thinks about itself? Mm -hmm. Yes, there have. And I think they're ongoing. But what I would almost start with is an everyday experience that I think reflects a bit of human nature. I think most people, most of the time, actually look at themselves in the mirror and they like the way they look. Mm -hmm. But most people, when they look at a photograph of themselves, say, oh, I don't look good in that photo. Mm. And I've often wondered, why do we like ourselves and the way we look in the mirror, but not in a photo? And I think to some degree, it's because the camera does a better job of capturing the way we look to others than the way we look to ourselves. And For most people in business, in life, in government, in a nonprofit, you do what you do because you're excited about it. You believe in what you're doing. You believe that what you're doing is good for others. Every company has a mission statement that is fundamentally about what it's doing for a community or society. So the tech sector for a long, long time really thought about itself fundamentally as just being good Mm. and not appreciating that the rest of the world looked at it a little bit differently. And I think the other adage or anecdote that captures this so well is a decade ago in Silicon Valley, people stood up and proudly said, we believe in moving fast and breaking things. And then eventually the rest of the world said, you know, I think you all are breaking more than you should. (laughs) And you don't hear people in Silicon Valley say that anymore. And I think that's good. The industry has gone through a shift, I would argue, is still going through a shift in having to accept the responsibility that is being foisted quite rightly upon it. And the interesting thing about Microsoft is we had to go through that before others. We're not necessarily, and we never necessarily were the smartest kid in the class, but we had to enroll in this school before others did. Because it started for us in the late 1990s, even in the earlier 1990s, in terms of the responsibilities that governments were pushing on us, so we have more experience dealing with it at times than some of the other companies in the tech
1: sector. And as you think about your specific career, was there a redefiner moment in how you saw and or shaped the role that you had and continue to have at Microsoft, perhaps in the tech world's role overall? The interesting thing about my
2: 30 years
1: at Microsoft is
2: that in some ways you could say I've only had four different jobs. And formally, that is true. Mm -hmm. But every year I've had a different job from the year before. Uh, And if there's a thread that runs throughout the 30 years, it probably does involve fundamentally grappling with what we just described. It has been trying to help Microsoft and others, including our customers, navigate through this ever-changing landscape. And in many ways, I started as a lawyer, but what we face in the world today is very much a connected, integrated, multidisciplinary set of functions and skills. I am happy I have a law degree and there are days when I actually use it. And there are times when I actually give legal advice, but mostly I'm dealing with a much broader swath of questions. And, you know, it has been that continuing broadening of intellectual disciplines of different functions. And that defines the role I play at Microsoft today, but I also think it very much defines what is needed in the world of business and maybe the world of government and nonprofits as well, to deal with just the
0: complexity of the world in which we live.
1: It's so complex on on so many different levels.
0: Yep, I completely agree. Can we just go back to how we look at the shift in the industry and the concern or discussion with governments and regulators? And I'm not trying to poke the bear here. I'm curious how you look at this. Pushing back against the power of technology industry, who, as you say, the industry understands it's now has responsibility and accountability. But you've dealt with the changing nature of government interaction responsibility. This focus on too few companies have too much impact. How do you look at that? How do you think this this shift you talked about in the industry handles that nowadays? No, I think it's a good bear to poke at. And to some degree, my job is to
2: deal with poking at things (laughs) uh, internally and externally. And I think there's a lot of virtue that comes out of asking yourself hard questions. Um, I, I would say there's a few things that are interesting to think about. The first is the, call it the regulatory evolution for digital technology. What is most interesting in some ways about this evolution is not that we're going through it now, but that it took so long to arrive Mm. and much more so than has been the case for the history of most technologies. So if you look at, say, the history of telecommunications or the telephone or the history of, say, media networks or the history of banks or the history of even the automobile industry, they typically were regulated nationally before they globalized. Interesting. Mm. Even something like an automobile, if you really look back when auto safety rules were enacted, say in the 1960s, There were relatively few automobile imports into the United States. The world was divided along national lines. So when these industries had to adapt to regulation, they were basically having to adapt principally to one country's regulation. Digital technology is different because the industry has globalized and then now you have many different governments trying to figure out how to regulate it at the same time. And so if you're a company trying to produce and provide technology on a global scale... The fact that the world is divided into 193 different United Nations members is very complex. Then you get to the second point that you describe. Look, there's more countries than there are big tech companies. People sometimes refer to the five largest in the United States, which are really uh, Apple, Google, or Alphabet. It's Amazon. Uh, It's Meta. It's Microsoft. And there's lots of other really important companies as well. And then you have Chinese technology leaders like Alibaba and Huawei, uh, Baidu and the like. But the fact that I can list these and most people go, yeah, that sounds like the the big list means I don't have to count to 193. Yeah. And so there is this focus on concentration and what does that mean? And in some ways it's good and in some ways it's bad. The thing that I would then always say is in most industries that are mature, you probably have three to five or seven really big players. And you go to the grocery store and go down any aisle and look at the food items that are there. And what you're probably going to see is multiple items from three to five or seven big players. And that's good. Where you should really worry is when you only have one or two, but people still worry. And I think that you do a better job in life at solving problems. If you worry about something, then ignore it. And we have to recognize as being the object, the subject of some of that worry, that that too raises new questions and even
0: responsibilities that we need to address. Is it easier to be one of five, or if you count China, one of 10? Or is it harder with 193 countries? I think
2: that It's actually easier if you can find some common ground. Mm. The interesting thing about the technology sector is that it involves competition oftentimes not only between products, but between business models. And when you have competition between business models, you can actually quickly get to real regulatory divergence and therefore regulatory battles among companies. Uh, And so you see that as a defining feature of our industry. It's been this way... Going back literally to uh, the 1980s when Fujitsu and Hitachi were battling it out with IBM and digital computer in the mainframe space, it's a complicated space is really the short story. There's a lot of complexity that one needs to manage that frankly also just includes managing
0: relationships with other people around the world and with competitors. So Brad, very interesting moment when we are helping boards choose leaders, particularly in the last three to five years. So post-pandemic inflation, Ukraine. We call it systems thinking that the ability to deal with complexity is a defining element of a great leader. And not everyone has the conceptual thinking skills to deal with complexity. Do you look for people in your teams or at Microsoft who naturally can deal with complexity? Do you think it's something you look for? Or you think it's something that emerges over time as a great leader? I think it's both. It's definitely a natural aptitude that some people have. And it is a
2: skill that anyone can develop. And mostly I spend an, a significant part of every day trying to develop and augment the skill in everyone around me, including myself, because <laughs> yeah, keep learning. you better not forget your own ability to keep trying to get better. Yeah. And, and the phrase I find myself uh, using frequently right now is people need to be able to do two things really well. They need to be able to inspect the trees, and analyze the forest. And they need to do both. If you analyze the forest without inspecting the trees, you don't really know what you're talking about. But if all you can do is inspect the trees, there is a real limit to your ability to contribute analytically, Mm -hmm. even as an individual contributor, but more importantly, as a leader who is trying to help people navigate this complexity. And yeah, if there's a frustration I sometimes find, it's when I get reports that are like tree inspection reports. Here is a report and it and it describes 10 trees. And I'm like, that's great. Um, what about the forest? And then somebody says, well, let me tell you about another 10 trees. <laughs> mm. And I'm like, wait a second. I don't have time to really listen to 100 trees. And then what you're making me do is become the forest analyzer. Everybody has to be good at both of these things. And analyzing the forest is fundamentally, in my view, at least in part, an exercise in identifying patterns.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. That, That's yep.
2: what it's about. And the interesting thing about life that is ironic is when you have a larger organization with more people and, frankly, more resources, you actually end up with people with greater capacity to inspect more trees. Mm-hmm. So sometimes... There's almost an inherent challenge in leading a large organization and trying to move people to analyze the forest. And what um, surprises me at times is how sometimes it is a solitary individual who just spends time thinking, who is a better analyzer of the forest my son is 31 years old. He works at an, as an analyst at the Rand Corporation and he actually spends a significant part of his work focused on AI policy trends and AI regulation around the world. So we actually, you know, share this and so we compare notes and I'm like sometimes I'm like that's a really good insight. I I hadn't thought about that and no one else who works for me had either. We have more resources, but he's forces himself to think on his own sometimes just by reading and thinking a lot. And I take that away and I try to remind people, um, never make the mistake of thinking that if you have more resources, you're going to be better at analyzing the forest. You might just need to spend some more time on your own. I
1: love it. (laughs) It's such a great point, Brad, because you need both perspectives, right? You need to be able to look at the details, inspect the trees, analyze the forest. I want to take that away from today's conversation. If we go back a second, though, and think about the topic of complexity of regulation, one of the things that we've really been seeing with a lot of our clients, but also just more broadly, is that cyber risk is at the top of the agenda of their priorities. Talk to us a little bit about the advice that you give executives as they think about cyber risk, the challenges in today's world, a lot of the complexities that you talked about around 190 plus countries, different jurisdictions, et cetera. What advice do you give to executives?
2: Well, the first thing is the importance of understanding the problem. Uh, I think another mistake that it's often easy to make is to rush so quickly to trying to solve something without having common ground or a consensus or some agreement about what the problem is in the first place. And that is true of cybersecurity and understanding the threat landscape and where one fits on the landscape. So, you know, in brief, if you look at the threat landscape for cybersecurity right now, we're seeing growing sophistication in the cyber criminal space, Mm. you know, fundamentally being driven by about 125 cyber criminal syndicates around the world that are fundamentally in the business of exploiting vulnerabilities to make money by ransomware or exfiltrating information And then making businesses pay to get it back. And then second, uh, there are these nation state activities, formidable foes operating at a national scale with government resources that in part are focused on espionage of private or public information, but also unfortunately and increasingly really trying to plant malware in places like critical infrastructure Mm -hmm. so that if there were hostilities, they could be exploited. So the first thing that means is think about where you are. If you're a small business, you might think you're not a target, but actually you are because the cyber criminal space is targeting smaller businesses as larger organizations get more sophisticated. If you're a water company, oh my gosh, you're critical infrastructure. You may have no information that is useful to a foreign government, but they sure would like to be in a position to cut off the water supply if there were ever a war. Start with understanding the problem. Then start with the solution and go to the solution. And really, we try to focus on two things. There is first what I call the 99% solution. Mm -hmm. The 99% solution involves taking four or five steps and doing it broadly across an organization. It starts with something like keeping your systems current, installing patches, and just using multi-factor authentication as we've mostly become accustomed. And then there's the 1% difference. And especially if you're in an area that's subject to being targeting, you have to get even more sophisticated. But if you back up from that and you just try to apply it across the board, you know there is an, uh, an analytical framework for almost every problem involving a technology threat. Understand the problem, where it's going, and where you fit on it. Understand the solutions and how they're evolving because they will continue
0: to evolve. We'll be right back with Brad Smith, but first let's hear from Manish Dubey, an executive director in our New York office. He shares why finding leaders who are tech-savvy is crucial to the success of your organization.
3: This is the voice of Amy Landucci, Chief Digital and Technology Officer at Halion, who we interviewed as part of our Tech Officer Vantage Point video series.
1: One of the most important things that the C-suite and the CEO and the board can be doing is actually continuing to challenge the organization on not accepting status quo. Because I think in a world where you're not accepting status quo, you're asking people to be curious, it naturally lends itself to experimenting with technology and moving forward with technology.
3: In this series, we asked tech officers from world-leading organizations to give us the inside track on how to unlock advantage through tech. We know that tech transformation is messy. It's complex. It requires difficult trade-offs, and the odds of failure are high, yet- With the right leaders at the helm, it's entirely possible to succeed. And we are not just talking about tech leaders. The CEO and everyone in the C-suite has to be behind the transformation. That's where we come in. We help organizations find and develop tech-savvy leaders who understand how technology drives growth. To hear from leading tech officers on how they have implemented tech transformation at their organization and the leadership lessons they have learned along the way, please visit the link in the show notes.
0: Now, back to our conversation
3: with Brad. If we shift a little bit, Brad,
0: talk about sustainability, where Microsoft and you personally have been quite aggressive in the commitments of Microsoft. And full disclosure to our listeners, we recruited the chief sustainability officer to Microsoft with Brad, Melanie. You said we're going to eventually be carbon negative. So a large part of that is not only your own operations, which the buck stops with you, your suppliers, and how you look at all of the integrated operations. Tell us about sustainability and how do others continue to lift the bar on themselves as you have on Microsoft? It is, I think, the
2: issue of the decade, if not the century, given the magnitude of what is a real climate crisis. And I think most scientific research and evidence has validated that conclusion. It's going to change every part of the economy globally, and it already is. And it's another example of how we just need to fundamentally drive change in how we behave, how we work, and how we invent and use technology. Um, Now, I would say a few things. At Microsoft, Satya Nadella, our CEO, Amy Hood, our CFO, and I stood on a stage together at the beginning of 2020 and said, we are declaring a moonshot. We will be carbon negative by the end of this decade. We're going to reduce our emissions and then we will be removing from the environment every year after that point, more carbon than we emit. The first thing I will say is like the case when the United States said in 1961, it would go to the moon. We didn't have all the answers. (laughs) I'm not sure in hindsight we even understood all the problems we would need to solve. And I would also say, as I remarked in a meeting earlier this week, in some ways, the moon has moved. It's farther away than it was in 2020. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Because, you know, AI is so energy intensive that, you know, we're looking at the expansion of data centers, not only on a scale that is unparalleled, but frankly, on a level that was not imaginable to us just a few years ago. And yet I would say today, even more than I said three years ago with Satya and Amy, this is the right thing for us to do. So what are we learning? The first thing I would say is, you gotta learn your numbers. You really have to understand your emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three, across your business, what is creating them? What is upstream in your supply chain? What is downstream in the usage of your products? And then how can you move the needle to reduce them? And for us, a game changer, actually, Clark, as you said, was the work that you helped us with, recruiting Melanie Nakagawa as our chief sustainability officer. And you know, out of that work, you know, fundamentally, what we are finding is that we have a very diversified business. It's very complicated. It's global. But you can look at a few things that will really determine whether we succeed or fail. Can we be purchasing semiconductor chips by the end of this decade that mostly are fabricated in plants that are running on carbon-free energy? Can we be building data centers out of materials that are no longer like the steel and concrete that we use today that emit so much carbon just in order to create them? You know, is it greener steel? Is it greener concrete? Or is it some alternative to steel and concrete? Can we do the same thing with the fuels that we use in a variety of contexts? But what you do out of all of this is create the ability to create what I now call like basically the equivalent of the income statement for a business. It's our carbon emissions statement that then looks at all of these, looks at it in every business, looks for the common threads, and then looks at how we can drive change. And we create technology now, the Microsoft Cloud for Sustainability, to help businesses do this. Everybody's going to have to do this, I think, because of the regulations that are quickly coming in Europe and elsewhere. And in a way, I'd say it's a good thing. You would never run a business without understanding your finances. You cannot sell your stock to the public without having financial controls that lead to reliable financial reporting. What the world did... With just generalized accounting principles, it is now doing with generalized carbon emissions accounting principles. And out of that accounting, there emerge the insights that lead to
0: effective action. I have a question, Brad. We're asked all the time as as we give, and I, I personally wrote a book on sustainable leadership and give a lot of discussions around the world to boards of directors. They all say, what measurement system should I use? I've got accounting systems, I've got things developed at World Economic Forum, I've got industry, I've got MPP, what do we use to start,
2: well, uh, Clark, I just can't resist swinging at this softball. <laughs> People should use the Microsoft Cloud for sustainability. No, okay, That was not the. No, 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 no,
0: no. No one's going to listen the, to this podcast ever again if I thought I handed that to you on a, on a platter, silver okay, platter. Outside of that, from sorry. A, outside of that, dear Mr. Smith, yeah. what would you suggest? The, the truth
2: is, what is most going to drive change around the world are the accounting principles being adopted in Europe for what's called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CSRD, because it applies not only to companies that are headquartered in Europe, it applies to businesses, even other organizations that have a presence in Europe for employees or revenue that a lot of people are going to have. So watch what happens in Brussels. Watch the rules And then, you know, and I'll say, it's not just Microsoft. Look at Salesforce, you know, look at other companies, look at IBM, look at others that are creating these tools. We're all going to have to snap to that. And then the one other thing I would say is just as you wouldn't run a business without a financial controller five years from now, for many companies, even like right now, you have to have a environmental sustainability controller. Fundamentally, it's most importantly a carbon emissions controller, but it's going to focus on water and waste and other elements as well.
0: So that is the gold platter you've bounced back, why people have to call Russell Reynolds Associates. Okay, we, we call that a tie match. Okay, that's fine. Okay, go for it. <laughs>
1: Brad, the time has flown by. We knew we wouldn't be able to pack this all into one episode, and we haven't even covered AI yet, which we know is a huge topic and we're sure will be top of mind for our listeners. We're thrilled to continue the conversation with you. Before we go, here are a few of my reflections from the episode. Career progression in one company is not only possible, but it can be incredibly fulfilling. In your 30 years at Microsoft, you've managed to evolve your role each year and embrace the shifts in technology. Navigating complexity. Leadership is really about thriving in complexity, whether it's through partnerships with regulators, working across borders with different governments, or simply focusing on growing a fast-paced, high-competitive business. Embrace uncertainty. Our conversation left me asking, is dealing with uncertainty a learned or inherent skill? I really like the analogy that you used, that for leaders to effectively lead through uncertainty, They've got to be able to not just inspect the trees, but also balance with analyzing the forest. I absolutely love that. It appears to be a skill that you've really honed over time. And finally, sustainability is 100% achievable. I really loved your quote about moon shooting leaders. Even when the moon moves, Microsoft has committed to becoming carbon negative by 2030. I was really inspired by your predictions for the future, Brad. I really hope that carbon emission statements will become the new income statements. And I really hope the sustainability controllers will become important in every company. It's really, really so inspiring.
0: This has been incredibly fascinating. Brad, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. We can't wait to continue the conversation. Thanks to both of you. Thank you all for joining us in this episode of Redefiners. Come back for part two of our conversation with Brad Smith in two weeks. We'll also be posting a link to Brad's book in our show notes. It is fascinating. You've got to check it out. For more compelling insights from leaders across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiner's wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Thank you so much for joining us.
0: To learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at RRA on Leadership. All the best.